The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This month to celebrate Asian Pacific Heritage Month in Asian Hosted Podcasts, we're bringing you an episode from They Call Us Bruce, one of our sister podcasts from the Potluck Podcast Collective. They Call Us Bruce is hosted by Asian American community mainstays Phil Yu, also known as the Angry Asian Man, and Jeff Yang, a prolific writer and celebrity dad, who, along with a guest or two, come together to discuss the good, the bad, and the WTF on the latest topics in Asian American culture and media. We've actually had the privilege of having Phil on this podcast, and Jeff's been a friend and supporter of Modern Minorities. On the episode we're featuring, Phil and Jeff are joined by Vivian Yoon, host and writer of the LAist podcast K-Pop Dreaming, to chat all about the rise of K-pop and pop culture and to be nostalgic about the classics. Listen to They Call Us Bruce wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and you can learn more about They Call Us Bruce and our other Potluck podcasts by going to podcastpotluck.com. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another edition of They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. I'm Phil Yu. And I'm Jeff Yang. And we are incredibly excited to welcome a very special guest to our studios, uh, none other than Vivian Yoon, writer and host of a podcast we've been just obsessing over recently, K-Pop Dreaming from LAist Studios. Vivian, welcome to They Call Us Bruce. Welcome! Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you guys. Um, I feel I've been listening to the podcast, like binging it. So I've had your voice in my ear nonstop for the last couple of days. And so I, 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 and then also you're very. It's very personal. The stories yes. that you tell is very personal. So I feel like I know you already. Like coming to like we just got on, logged on, and I just felt like Vivian. Oh, it's been, hey, I what's know. Up, girl? Let's like, catch up. <laughs> <laughs> That's so. Fu- I mean, it's so funny because like I've also known of both of you, obviously. So it it it's like very mutual you know what I mean where I'm like oh I kind of feel like I already know you too so that's great I love that it's that it's that proxy relationship you develop with somebody who's just like in your brain for (laughs) hours at a time I mean it's it's like directly into it's directly into your ear so it's very it's very intimate right well I was gonna say that's kind of what the podcast says about k-pop too right that part of the power of music is that it it just resides with you it becomes not just something that entertains you but it's something you're doing when you're doing other things it's like the constant soundtrack of your life and that's kind of one of the most amazing things about k-pop dreaming in that as much as it is a history of k-pop you know an unpacking of what k-pop means how it evolved to what it is today it's also this really intimate journey of Vivian Yoon, right? It, it sort of talks about how you, through K-pop and with K-pop, kind of grew up. And that's actually the stuff which I found most just heartwarming and powerful about this story. And, I mean, just let's jump off there. How did you get involved with this, and how did K-pop Dreaming even come to be? Yeah, so it was actually the senior producer on the show, Fiona Ng, who works at LAist, she was the one who years ago had the idea for a podcast about K-pop um, that really told the story of K-pop through the lens of like the Korean diaspora in LA. So that was like very much her brainchild. And I think she sort of had a vague idea of certain topics she might want to hit, things like trot, you know. Um, but then, yeah, she was looking for a host. And then it just so happened that like we got connected. And the more we chatted, the more we were like, yeah, it feels like there's something real here. So... Fiona really is the one who hired me (laughs) and that's really what happened and then from there we worked on trying to figure out like okay so what is this show I I I stalked you a little bit on Instagram I will admit but I noticed in one of your posts that you gave a shout out to um our friend Quincy Surasmith who yeah I think connected you to LAS am I right yes yes okay so Quincy is the one who uh, heard that Fiona was looking for like a Korean American writer and host and so Quincy is the one who thought of me and it's just because I had been posting on Instagram okay so 
Quincy and I know each other through UCB because I was mm. like an improv sketch person and I was on a house team at UCB on like Herald Night or whatever. Um, and so Quincy and I knew each other through the comedy scene, but then he saw these Instagram stories I was doing where I was just telling stories about my time like growing up in K-Town. And so when he, he heard like what Fiona was trying to do, he was like, oh, I know somebody you should talk to. And that's how he ended up connecting us. So yeah. Wait, how do you know Quincy? Oh, Quincy He's, is what he hosts his podcast. Asian Americana is yeah. one of the yeah. our you know sibling Thank podcasts you. on the on the Potluck Podcast Collective. Oh, right. In addition to when you talk about people, you're just like, how do you know so and so? It's like from being Asian, from being Asian. yeah, 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 <laughs> that kind of thing. So that's I, so uh, But shout true. out to Quincy. He's a great guy and uh, um, really appreciate it. And look, inadvertently, indirectly, he brings us you to us here today. So. <laughs> right on <laughs> really really it's it's it really is and i keep telling quincy like i i owe you <laughs> i owe you something some food or something <laughs> for sure well i i gotta say that whole notion of like knowing people from just like being asian right it, it's something that we take for granted a little bit that like oh of course you know uh, it's almost a joke. It's like, oh, do you know X, Y, and Z? Oh, yeah, that's my cousin or something, right? In in our small circle of Asian America in particular. But I th- actually think that one of the really kind of lovely things that you you land on even early on in the podcast is the fact that K-pop actually, in particular, was something that made friendships happen, that brought people together. Well, that and, and church, <laughs> <laughs> like Korean church brings people together and K-pop brings people together. And so you have, you Korean, have... Church, Korean church also uh, tears people apart. I will well, say that. As yes. Well, eventually so. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've, we've seen both. Um, it's, you know, you've got to unmake to make, but uh, all that said, uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, you talk about these two friends who actually end up being part of the, the audio tapestry of this. It's a uh, Saren Randy, I think, who you, yeah, you, you grow Sarah up Randy. with. Yeah. And for whom K-pop was kind of the connective tissue in a lot of ways. Well, and Korean church <laughs> that enabled you to find one another in a time when, I mean, much like we did over the last couple of years of pandemic, we didn't have a lot of things that we could actually connect with. And it ended up being for a lot of us, you know, visuals, Zoom like this. But back then, Zoom didn't exist the thing that brought people together was hearing somebody humming a song that actually was in your head at the same time. And they seem like amazing people. And I mean, the fact that you were able to bring that personal facet of yourself into this story, that's really what instantly captivated me. It's like, oh, wow, this is not, again, just a history story. It's a story of kind of your journey. So did you actually, was that part of the idea of the podcast to begin with? Or is it something you brought to it when Fiona first said, hey, looking for a host for this thing? Um, It definitely was not part of the podcast from the beginning. I was not planning on like talking to my friends or my family at all. (laughs) And so those were kind of really organic discoveries. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a huge part. Like your grandma and your parents. It's like, when I say I feel like I know you. Like that is such a huge, significant part of this of the narrative of the podcast. Anyway, please continue. Yeah, no, yeah, I know it's surprising because it's like you know, literally half of the show is about my friends and family and my personal life. Um, but it really was like we were making really organic discoveries along the way. So for the mixtape episode, I was like, I need a way to kind of explain the fact that there are different generations of K-pop. Right, oh, yeah. like first, second, third, fourth, and kind of explain some of the big tentpole moments so that people who aren't already K-pop fans can have a way of like, you know, everybody listening can start at the same place so that when we go into things like Trot and Sotaji and Solid, um, everybody kind of ha- starts with the same baseline understanding. So we, we were like, we need some kind of primer episode. And we tried writing so many different versions. And then eventually I was like, you know what? I'm just going to bring it back to the personal and just talk with my friends and then yeah like map the different generations to like whatever was going on in my life at the time Um, because otherwise it's just really boring (laughs) like to be honest it was just like too much information and I felt like um, the only way to anchor it 
For me, I think when it comes to like historical concepts, it's a lot easier for me to really understand what is happening if it's grounded in the experience of one person. So I think that's what ended up happening with these like bigger concepts. I was like, okay, well, how can we anchor this in a real life situation, um, a real place and person um, and feelings so that we're not just like drifting throughout history. So that's kind of how that episode happened. And then with like, trot and then moon night where i talk with my grandma about growing up during the japanese occupation and then going through the korean war um and then i talked to my mom about like meeting my dad who was an american soldier stationed in seoul those are really organic discoveries too because we knew we wanted to talk about trot and then i suddenly realized like oh my grandma has been obsessively telling me about the show mr trot for like two years this is a perfect tie-in you know or oh, wait, there's this nightclub in 1980s Seoul that was for American soldiers. Wait, my dad was an American soul, <laughs> American soldier like stationed in Seoul in the 80s. And so it really was just because we were making discoveries like as they were happening. Mm. That's how it happened. Well, that's actually kind of the cool thing about the podcast in the sense that it very much is talked about K-pop through the Korean-American lens. And K-pop mm-hmm. has been universalized much like hip-hop became universalized in a lot of ways, as uh, something that everybody has an attachment to, that the whole world seems to have a little piece of now. But we often overlook that it did come out of not just the Korean community, but it was the Korean-American community that first owned it before anybody even recognized it. And Koreatown, right? You know, people, you end with Koreatown, but people don't really think about the fact that these immigrant communities are the crucibles in which new forms of fusion, new forms of crossover do occur, whether those those you know kind of diaspora communities are in America, like K-Town, or in Seoul, like the neighborhood of Itaewon, right? And the, the best way of, of kind of bringing those things to light is to tell those personal stories. Uh, I, I've got to say that the, the one in particular well, okay, let's talk about Trot real quickly, because before we actually came on, uh, I was like, I also came into contact with the idea or the term Trot from a Korean reality show, not Mr. Trot. Uh, we were obsessively watching Physical 100, and one of these super jacked specimens said, oh yeah, I am a UFC fighter and a Trot singer. <laughs> like, so what is Trot? And so that sent me down this <laughs> yeah. rabbit hole. I'm like, why is this music called Trot? I mean, it's it's this Korean folk music of sorts, but it's the name Trot doesn't seem like it's even a Korean term, and it's not. And I found out literally through the episode that you did that Trot actually references Foxtrot and, and the particular yeah. cadence of Foxtrot. So it's stuff like that that's really kind of incredible. Uh, and I don't was this stuff that you knew already or stuff that you also were learning while you were going along? I was absolutely learning all of the same things that um yeah every bit of information I present is something that I learned throughout like the research process and the reporting process okay but I also want to say I watched physical 100 and I remember (laughs) that moment too because they introduced him as a trot singer first like through the tiny little you know the captions they give everybody of like so-and-so car dealer so-and-so YouTube whatever and I was like How can they just drop that he's like a famous trot singer and then never address it, like never talk about it again? And I feel like the show kept doing that where they would drop like these really juicy descriptions and then never explain to us what the heck they do. Um, And I know it was strategic, right? Because there were people who were like, you know, like there's a YouTube guy, but they said he was the CEO of whatever company he was trying to promote. Mm. And so... I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. So I remember the exact same guy and moment, too, because I was like, that's a wild thing to just like never bring up again ever. It's so it's so Korean. It is because like, okay, uh, now I'm sort of flashing all my Korean reality addiction uh, colors here. But okay, like in in Singles Inferno, uh, Uh they, they had the same thing where one of the contestants this most recent season is literally Miss Korea. She's like, yes. <laughs> she won Miss Korea. And she just put out there, it's like, oh, I'm an artist. You know, I, I am know. very pretty. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> it's so interesting, right? It's so, so interesting. Okay, another, okay. I know we're like totally on a tangent, but I'm also very, very fascinated with like Physical 100 and Singles Inferno because reality TV 
the American style of reality TV is so new to Korea that mm. like here people have been studying Survivor for decades, right? Like they've they've just they know the format, they know that there are certain edits for a villain, for a redemptive arc, whatever, and people <laughs> go on the show knowing how they want to present themselves. But Korea doesn't have that kind of like cultural mm. cachet yet. Yeah. So it's like a very different experience. And so I don't know. I just thought the whole thing was fascinating. I was like totally rooting for sexy Yama the entire time. I didn't realize he was like <laughs> raised in Japan, born and raised in Japan, but he's ethnically Korean, which is also fascinating. But now he's like trying to be famous in Korea. So when you look at his Instagram, he speaks and addresses people like in Korean and English, but he only writes his captions in Japanese. Oh, so it's like very strategic. Anyway, I'm also like obsessed, if you can tell. I, I don't know what we were talking about before this. <laughs> All right, no let's idea. Wait. So yeah, uh, Team Chang and Shield, by the way, I'll got to drop that. So first, love, uh, love her, also, love her. Um, we were talking about Trot, and let me, let me yeah. say, yes. we, you know, that is anchored by a conversation that you have with your grandmother, you know, and it it totally in, welled up in me just my the. My relationship with my own grandmother when I was growing up, um, you know, she passed away, you know, over 20 years ago, but, you know, she grew up with us and I grew up in my household watching Korean broadcasts and videotapes of music shows. And the, the soundtrack of those shows was Trot. And I didn't know it was called Trot until I heard your podcast, but I knew instantly when i heard those melodies the cadence of those songs i was like oh shit like this is and i had no idea like the the history behind it it's sort of um you know kinship with japanese uh uh what's it called ek, ek, what is enka? It, what's it called Ekta enka or enka enka yeah, yeah, enka, yeah, yeah. enka. yeah. With, with enka you know and and then like but you can hear the similarities in there you know in that in that style and I don't know, man. It was it just kind of welled up in me like this, like oh, this is a part of me. Like I, yeah. I never appreciated this, but this is actually, it's part of my like bloodstream right now, you know. And so oh. that to me was like so fascinating to hear its origins and um and then its relationship also to Korean music and then modern mm. Korean music. I was like, you know, there's there's many moments throughout the podcast where I was like, I could map my experience and my identity my story with yours Vivian so I'm a little bit I'm definitely like half a generation older than you but so but there was so much in there where I was like listening to you there's things about I knew about k-pop and Korean entertainment and music that I just didn't I, I knew it but I didn't know it you know and mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. there are many instances where I was like they should um you know she should talk about this if she's going to... Oh, okay. Oh, here it is. Here it is. You know, I was like, <laughs> oh, you should talk about Korean music, K-pop's relationship to hip-hop. Or, oh, okay, here it is. Oh, they're going into that now. Okay. And then I was like, you should talk to... Oh, I bet... You know what would be great? If she they talked to Solid. That would be so... But they would never... Oh, they did! I don't, you know, it's like... No way. Because I, I know Bernie Cho and Jay Chong. Yeah. Um, oh. And then I remember... And, and I remember when you, the episode about K-Con, I was like... Oh, it would be cool if they talked to Angela Killer, and I'm like, oh yeah. shit! Like, I, I'm friends with Angela, so I was like, oh my, oh my god, god, they're talking to her. So, I don't know. There's a lot of things like that where wow. I was like, oh, this is such a cool, like, just a cool way of telling this, you know. And so, I, I, I just felt it on a way that, like, I, in a way that I, I have consumed K-pop not in a very um, deep level, honestly. Mm -hmm. So, th but this this show kind of confirmed and shored up a lot of the interesting things that I didn't know. Um, on a more on a more nuanced level, you know, and I and I really appreciated that. I, I I'm speaking to you now as a Korean American, like yeah. it, it it sort of fulfilled in in a way things that I thought were, um, kind of uh, a a vacuum or a blind spot for me. It was cool. Ah, oh, it like <laughs> makes me kind of emotional to hear you say that. Um, yeah, I think the thing is, like, even for me, I didn't realize how common a lot of these experiences were for Korean Americans, like, mm. from California until the podcast came out. And then people started being like, this is my life. This is what I went through. I had the same experiences. And, and um, yeah, and it really just strengthens the idea that, like, there are commonalities that, like, bind communities together, you know, that's not that's not made up that's not imagined like it's very real and i think it's really powerful because 
all of those shared experiences, like they are rooted in history and they're important, you know? And I think like that's something that I felt um, growing up was like somehow Korean American history isn't as important as Korean mm-hmm. history or American yeah. history. Um, but it is. Um, the podcast is structured around this larger idea um, that I feel like that you're grappling with in that for you, K-pop was just kind of this thing that you secretly enjoyed. And even on a social level, it was kind of like a little bit of a thing that you you only let in certain people to like to, to acknowledge that we we enjoy K-pop. Yeah. That is a very marked difference than what is now, right? Where K-pop so is different. consumed on a global level, massive popularity. I mean, I think K-pop fans today, young K-pop fans today would be like bewildered by the fact that you know, if I told the story of like when I was growing up, nobody fucking knew who a, who a, where Korea was, <laughs> yeah. who a Korean was. You know what I mean? So like true. I am old yeah. enough to remember where kids would be like, "Are you Chinese? Are you Japanese? Yeah. I'm Korean. What is Korean? I never heard of." Like that's a real conversation I had. You know, in Cal in San Jose, California. You know, so that is weird. That's that's just yeah. a weird thing to describe, considering the penetration that you know like the K wave has had across, you know, across the world. It's so true. It's so true. Like even, even growing up in Koreatown, like I would get called Chinita all the time. Mm. And it's like, obviously, you know, we're not Chinese. Like all of us live in Koreatown together, but still the default is always Chinese or Japanese. And now it's changed so much. We actually have an associate producer on the show who is Korean American, but she's like younger than me. And she was sort of like, yeah, this is blowing my mind. Like, I can't imagine anyone <sighs> ever um, <laughs> having to be secretive or like K-pop not being cool or ever thinking about that. And she's just like, she's like just half a generation apart from me. And even mm. even her, she was like, I can't believe this was real, yeah. you know? Well, so it's speaking true. for the uh, the global population of non-Koreans... <laughs> 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 who are outsiders to all this and nevertheless have been sort of pulled into, the, you know, through how you all of these different things, whether it's K-drama, K-reality, K-pop and everything. Uh, it has really been fascinating to see the inversion from that perspective, right? Uh, I mean, look, I was also called Chinita or Chinito, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and I'm still called that, right? Uh, but I would say that at this point, the rise of Korean culture and identities and content and uh, brands have gotten to a place now where there are probably more people who see non-Koreans in a lot of ways increasingly through the lens of what Korean pop culture has manifested for them. I mean, sometimes it's a challenge. Like, let's be real. We don't all look like, you know, K-drama stars. <laughs> God forbid uh, that uh, somebody like me would ever, you know, be uh, as as beautiful as those boys. But at the same time, it has really had huge implications for Asians outside of Korea and non-Korean Asians. It is mm-hmm. it is something where that that sort of fundamental. I won't even call it lifting of all boats, but the shedding of light on the fact that they're. There are so many different facets of us and so many different ways to look at us that are are beyond what many of us grew up with. That right. I, that's all owed in a lot of ways to the rise of, of Korean pop culture. Uh, and I, I just want to add one more thing. I mean, y- you kind of mentioned this, Phil, you know, the sort of historical roots of K-pop with hip hop. I, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, bringing on the the historian slash musicologist uh, the African-American woman who wrote the book Soul and Soul, right, to kind of talk about those deep structural roots of where K-pop came from out of the influence and and the inspiration of black performers, uh, in many cases coming from black soldiers, like African-American soldiers who were stationed in Korea. And that whole Moon Knight episode where the commensal relationship in a lot of ways of, of African-American soldiers and Korean-Americans who were in the community and, and kind of learning from one another, 
that was kind of that's a story that hasn't been told, right? We only hear that was about, fascinating. Yeah, we only hear about these things from the standpoint of the tensions that arise or the 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 deeper and darker sort of streaks of colonialism that still you know are are a big part of Korean culture. But th- that friendship, that sharing, that sense of common ground. That's something we don't hear a lot about. So that was really, really lovely. Oh, I'm so glad you like that. Yeah, I thought that was so... um, It kind of blew me away when I first learned about Moon Knight. Just because (laughs) so many famous people from Korean music were there. Like, literally the big three were there. SM, YG, JYP, they were all there. Seotiji was there. Hyunjin Young was there. Like, the clone guys were there. Um... Uh, Jusu, they were there and like there were so many people who were there and there were also like these like female k-pop singers that were there and i was just like how have i never heard of this place because you know cbgb in american pop culture history is like so iconic and like Mm. so revered and people talk about it all the time or like you know madame wong in la in or like uh or like latin quarter in new york like yeah mm, exactly like all these places are so revered and they've become legendary like right but but yeah like k-pop it felt like it was missing i don't know once i found out about moon knight i was like how is how have i never heard about this you know it's Mm. it's so interesting and i'm sure korean koreans like have but it's just a matter of like just that one degree of separation from like asian america of not being aware of that history i thought was really fascinating but it's it's true also the thing you said earlier jeff about um suddenly like asian people being seen in a different light Mm. because k-pop i've never (laughs) thought about that but that's true like it used to be this dichotomy of like you could only be chinese or japanese like that was it and now we've introduced like one more flavor which i guess (laughs) opens up the idea that there's like a ton of other countries that belong to the continent of asia (laughs) i I think people forget like how big asia really is you know um and it's interesting like even like southeast asian countries get left out of the cultural conversation a lot um which i mean i don't know this might be kind of random to bring up but there's this academic named michelle cho who we were talking to and prepping for the podcast and i didn't know this but she was saying that it's really complicated when you look at like how popular K-pop is in places like Vietnam because uh, after the U.S., South Korea had the largest number of troops in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Mm. And I didn't right. know that. Like I didn't yeah. realize that. And they had committed like all these atrocities, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's just like very layered. Like there's so much history behind the music that I just like had no idea about until listening. Mm. It's fascinating. There is one other thing I wanted to talk to you about in, um, in terms of your, it goes hand in hand with the first episode where you're talking about sort of the the thing you said secretly and, and very embarrassedly like kind of uh, listen to K-pop and, you know, to the point where you were like listening to it and you would, you know, you would have your finger on the ready to hit, you know, to to, to hit to a, a strategically placed song where you're like, oh, I'm not listening to K-pop. I'm listening to whatever. I don't know, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jimmy Eat World or something, you know. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and that was kind of the way you consumed K-pop. But, you know, this this podcast, K-pop Dreaming, is kind of an interesting thing where the, the mixtape or even just, you know, telling people what you listen to, I feel like that is a, a, such an a significant huge act of vulnerability like anybody telling somebody <laughs> what you yeah. listen to I, I i mean like i would i can't think of it, uh, any more sort of embarrassing or vulnerable thing where i would like okay here's my spotify playlist guys like check it you know like <laughs> you know that i have like, that is unedited yeah. and you know just check it out and you know, and then especially if I told people like what I listened to in my youth, you know, yeah. without any kind of filter, just showing people like, I don't know, like that is a that is an act of a vulnerability of true vulnerability. You know, that's so funny. I was worried, actually. I was like, what are what are people who were fans of K-pop from like the first and second generation? Like, what are they going to think of my song choices? Because mm. I was thinking about including things like, you know. Than Arayo by Sotajian Boys because mm-hmm. it's so classic. But I was like, 
I mean, if we're being honest, I did not have a personal connection to that song, so I can't mm. include it. So there were like picks like that where I was like, it would be really good for the history, like explaining part, but it's just not true. Um, so I was scared that people were going to judge me. But then I think this really fun thing happened where I think people just gravitate towards like the parts that they do relate to as opposed to the things that don't resonate with them. So they people just text me and message me on Instagram being like, I loved when you talk about this band. Or I loved when you talk about this singer, um, which I thought was really nice, you know. And I didn't realize that like MC Mong was like a deeper cut for hmm. some people. Um, so it's just it's just been really interesting. Everybody has their own relationship to music, you know. It's like really, really so personal. I think it's like really nice i uh i gotta say of course not being korean although i am surrounded by koreans at all times it feels like <laughs> uh the um the songs that i first connected with in your mixtape were the golden age ones right mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you know g for instance uh girls generation like i i remember first hearing that and saying damn this is just like a, a perfect pop confection uh you know, it, it's impossible for me to imagine that somebody could listen to this and not feel their toe tapping, right? And then nobody, uh, Wonder Girl, mm -hmm. right? The Wonder Girls. I, I remember actually covering the Wonder Girls when they f came to America. And I actually think people don't really remember this, but so I interviewed JYP and that oh. guy, he's a, he's like kind of a, a weird guy, but also incredibly <laughs> charismatic <laughs> and visionary and he was what he was trying to do was he was literally trying to not just bring k-pop stars to america but k-pop like to to open a k-pop studio in mm -hmm. america he built sort of jyp house in new york and mm -hmm. outfitted it with multiple floors you know like this is i think right after rain had left him or whatever and he was just trying to find the next big thing and and wonder girls was it and i remember him telling me back then that his belief was, you know, whether or not the artists that he created now were were successful in America, and he believed that they would be, of course, uh, or whether or not even JYP's American studios took root and created a whole new K-pop industry in America, he believed K-pop was the future. And the reason why wasn't actually because of the music or the talent, although he, of course, said we have you know, we have uh, all this talent that is undiscovered. And it is, again, as many people have said throughout the history of, of inclusion and diversity, it is not for want of talent, it's always for want of opportunity. If people were just to listen and hear us, then we would succeed. But he actually said the two things that uh, make K-pop the future of music was one, hard work, right? Because Koreans appreciate hard work almost as much, if not more so than talent. <laughs> We'll like start with anything and we'll turn into a K-pop star almost. And then uh, the second thing was um, the business model because he said that K-pop had long since gone past this world where people were selling physical objects, discs and albums. It's like, those are just souvenirs to us, he said. People are making money through other ways. They're streaming platforms, but also we're creating brands. And it's the brands actually that are the value. And then when you talk about how BTS basically allowed big big hit to go public and is worth billions of dollars. It's not because they sold a lot of records. No one knows what a record is in Korea. It's because they created these incredibly powerful brands that are much bigger than even the individuality of, of the stars, the artists themselves. So it, it was kind of like amazing to hear in your podcast in some ways all of the dots that had to be filled in to get from that moment of talking to JYP to today where actually all of that came true, you know? It, it's yeah. mind-blowing to me. That's really interesting. You talk about the four phases of, of K-pop and a lot of what you talk about is the sort of road to today. But what do you think has made K-pop so incredibly successful? And why is it resilient? When people thought it was just a fad, how is it that it's just lasted so long and continued to be such a, an incredibly important genre? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I think it's like a very complicated answer and people like much, much smarter than me who are actual like K-pop academics can probably point to a million different things. For me, the big things I saw were 
the rise of social media and mm. the increased power of the fandom that happened around, you know, 2015 as like Twitter became like such an integral part of fandom. Um, also, there was this like music competition show called Produce 101, right? Mm. That came out in Korea and it was like, the idea of the show was that fans could produce their own K-pop group. So they could like vote um, every week and like send their favorites like to the top and then they would become an eventual group. And they created like a girl group and then a, a boy group, 101, and then... Um, was was this Kepler also? Yeah, yeah, yeah. IOI. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like right. it, it was a whole thing. And I think that happened around the same time that like polls... And things were getting big on Twitter and social media. And then all of a sudden, like, fans could start voting for their favorite artists to win awards or get exposure on the radio and things like that. So, like, all of this was happening around the same time that increased, like, ownership and actual, like, power um, from fans. So I think that's, like, one thing. But I do think the JYP and brand thing is really interesting because something that we didn't get to talk about is Isuman as much. And he was, like, the founder of SM Entertainment. He was the creator of, like, the first idol boy band group, H.O.T. But he actually took inspiration from, like, American boy bands and groups, but also people like Bobby Brown and Michael Jackson Mm -hmm. um, earlier than that. And he took from the Japanese idol trainee system, right, to, like, create K-pop. And from the beginning, he was sort of like a Steve Steve Jobs kind of guy where, like, he didn't invent the computer, but he invented the way that people thought about the computer and like mm-hmm. turned it into the system. And so that's sort of what he did for K-pop where he took an engineering approach to it. And he actually, I think, studied engineering at Cal State Northridge or something like that. <laughs> um, so he like brought this very like scientific approach to K-pop and like established a formula. So I think there's a lot more like thought that goes into it than people who aren't fans of it might my thing um which was me like two years ago before i started working on this podcast like i had no idea like the depth behind the genre because i would never have called myself like a k-pop fan before it's funny um here you mentioned the cal state northridge connection but like (laughs) sprinkled throughout the podcast like when mentioning uh, personalities in korean pop like there's there's always somebody who's like who is like oh oh yeah he used to be a dj in like you know in fullerton or something like or like things like that where like people are like have these weird little american connections like oh yeah that superstar in korea yeah he used to just be you know he used to be a dancer in like you know k-town or something like that you know so there's all those like um just you know you do a good job of like connecting like there's always been kind of this um connection with korean americans and in america Mm -hmm. and and you know and people doing the stuff here um that is is connected back to sort of the larger diaspora and then also to the industry in Korea. And I I, I really appreciated that because I've, again, I felt like it connected me and the lot. And then, you know, by extension, sort of um, the Asian American community, you know, who we have always, you mentioned this in the podcast as well, but like we're always looking for representation, striving for things to connect to that look like us that reflect our experiences. And that for the longest time, has not been present. And for a yeah. lot of people looking to K-pop, but also dramas and, you know, Korean pop culture in general has been the way we've been able to see ourselves in some, some you know, fashion by Trick of the Light, you know, um, on screen, you know. So that's been a really interesting way to look at Asian Americans, Korean Americans kind of relationship to Korean pop culture. Yeah. I mean, there's that joke, right, where it's like Kevin Bacon and this six or seven degrees of separation or whatever. But for Korean Americans, it's like literally one. (laughs) Like, you know, a guy who knows the guy you're thinking about. Like, we all just know each other. We're just one person away. I think that's really true. And the thing you're talking about with representation, um, this was in like one of the drafts for one of the scripts of the podcast. And like, it just didn't make it in. But at one point during the solid episode, right, these Korean American guys who are the first group to make it big in Korea. I talk about the importance of representation because it can literally mean the difference between somebody going after a dream or not. You know, mm. like 
I had all these secret dreams when I was growing up, all these things that I wanted to do that I didn't tell anybody about. So ever since I was like a little kid watching Nickelodeon or Disney Channel, like I wanted to be on TV, but there's like no little Korean girl on all that. So I'm just like, well, (laughs) there must be a reason for that. Like that must not be meant for me. Mm. And then all these different spaces, not seeing people like you, like there was no pachinkos. There was no like Korean American, like famous novelist. There was no radio personality, like nothing. So it wasn't until I was in my 20s, my early 20s, and somebody took me to go see like a really tiny, like it was like a Second City um, improv show, but Steven Yeun was performing. Mm. Um, And this was like, he was on The Walking Dead, but he wasn't so famous that people would like mob his show. Yeah. So I went and when I saw Steven on stage, like, I didn't see somebody doing something wildly out of reach. I saw somebody who was from my community who looked like me doing something that looked really fun that I wanted to do. And then after I chatted with him and he was like so nice and encouraged me to go for it. And then I signed up for my first improv class and that's how I got into acting and writing. It was just through seeing somebody doing the thing that I wanted to do who looked like me that made it feel possible. You know, all of a sudden it's, it's not out of reach. It's so doable. So I think what you're talking about feels like so, 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 so true. The most amazing thing to me about K-pop is that it is so recent, right? It is so much within our lifetimes that it, it didn't exist before the uh, you grew up as you were coming of age or, you know, middle school, et cetera, was kind of the earliest days that K-pop even existed as something like what we know it. So the first pioneers for all that stuff they're still here, right? It's not like, you know, it's not like something where we're talking about, I don't know, uh, classical music or something or you know, Beijing opera or whatever. You know, forms of creativity whose historical record is, is deep enough in time that it seems almost mythical. We know the legends. The, the, the myth makers walk amongst us or at least close enough to us that we can still see them on TV, see them on YouTube, hear them. And I, I love the fact that we are finally getting to a point where a lot of this recent history, the stuff that to us is somewhere between nostalgia and history, is becoming relevant to people again. And I'm not just saying that because we wrote a book about the last three decades of Asian America, but... It's because we're such a relatively recent invention ourselves, like Asian America is a recent invention, that us getting relevant in our lifetimes is something a lot of us I don't think even could have imagined would happen. But here we are now. And frankly, stuff like the rise of K-pop is a a big part of that. So this is just such an essential listening, this particular podcast you guys have created. Oh, thank you. And... It's interesting because I feel like while Korean entertainment and K-pop has been having its moment, right, in the sun, sometimes I feel like Korean Americans are left out of that conversation because, right, like Netflix is investing so much money into Korean, South Korean entertainment, like millions and millions Mm. of dollars. Um, And while we are seeing an increase in Asian American representation, it's nowhere near like the same scale, right? Like the shows we're talking about, Singles Inferno, Physical 100. Those are South Korean TV shows, not Korean American TV shows. Mm. And I think sometimes even in talking about the podcast, like non-Asian people will ask me to speak on behalf of like, what do South Koreans think about this? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not Korean Korean, right? Like there's a difference. And so I feel like sometimes there is also like a weird conflation that happens. And I think it's important to know the distinction of like, yeah, when you talk about um, Korean Americans going to South Korea to make music, like maybe don't say it's us going back home. Right. Because maybe that was never our home. Maybe we grew up in LA. Like, so I I think sometimes it gets really complicated and and it's, it's, it's kind of good to be aware maybe um, of that difference. For sure. Um, And I think the podcast is a, is a great start for a lot of people. All right, this is a good time for us to do our favorite segment, our signature segment, the good, the bad, and the WTF. So, Jeff Yang, 
Would you please lay down the rules of engagement? I will. This is, of course, our roundtable segment where we take a single topic and serve it up three ways. Those three ways are the good of the thing, the thing that makes us happy inside, the bad of the thing, the thing that uh, is troubling or frustrating or problematic, and finally, the WTF, which could be good, could be bad, could be neither. It's just the thing that's still dwelling with us, that we're still hmm, wondering about long after the fact. So we're going to do with our guest, Vivian Yoon, uh, a topic that obviously makes a lot of sense, given the fact that she is the writer and host of K-pop Dreaming from LAS Studios. <laughs> we wanted to do the good, the bad, and the WTF of growing up with K-pop. And I, I think part of the reason we chose this one in particular is because so much of the most really interesting stuff in your podcast really is about the intersection of of K-pop in your life and in your family's lives and in your friends' lives. And I think that's true for a lot of people for whom K-pop was just an instrumental part of, of their childhood and middlehood and teenhood experience. So let's kick it off with the good. Like, what is the good of growing up with K-pop? Um, well, I can definitely say that I was like an OG K-pop fan before, you know, the third generation mm. grew. So it gives me a little bit of cred there, which I like. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of reflection for the series, like in writing it, but also, you know, you think about things after. And I think it's been really incredible seeing that all of the different things that shaped K-pop, like all of the big like geopolitical forces and like immigration patterns and all those things, like the way the culture crossed over, all of those things that shaped K-pop are the same things that shaped my life. And so mm. in doing this deep dive into K-pop history, it gave me a reason to go back and reorganize my life and look at the mm. different phases of my life. Um, and it gave me the chance to like rewrite some of those narratives that I had been telling myself about the way I grew up, right? So for example, in mixtape, all of those memories that I take people through and and my ending conclusion is that like my friends were there with me the entire time, just like K-pop was there with us. That's not how I always used to view those years of my life, right? It's mm. only through revisiting that time through the podcast um, that it allowed me to see that this love and this music was there the entire time. So I think that is like one really, really great thing is that it gave me the opportunity to like make this show and then like change my life because of it and things like that. So I think that's really good. <laughs> that's awesome. That's so great. I, I felt the same way though, listening to it, you know. Uh, being on the receiving end of the podcast, like my own sort of Korean American identity, and then even like you, thinking about all the factors that went into creating K-pop, all on that world level, on the geo geopolitical level, on a historic level, how it trickled down to just like you know the, the way my family ended up in the United States and the way I grew up, like all that too. I I also kind of examined and interrogated my my story in really even though i wasn't a big k-pop fan but like looking at all that stuff all the stuff that you present in the podcast has been was really um eye-opening so again thank you for that yeah i have a question for you too phil like you know i personally feel like every korean american person i know has like a pretty like painful and traumatic family history right just because there's like migration things involved and then there's like remnants of there's just so much trauma right through korean history and i think it affected korean culture in a lot of ways and, and there's a lot of secrecy and shame and not being able to talk about certain things and i'm like i guess my question is like do you relate <laughs> do you relate to that darkness <laughs> I, I, I relate on a level that i when you talk about it i understand like yeah, i get you know what yeah, i mean like I, yeah. and I can't drudge up anything super painful in my own family's history but right but i but i but i have been witness to so much of that and i in in, in a way that like oh you say no more i get it yeah you know yeah. what i mean like that kind yeah, of thing yeah like, yeah yeah and we talk about you know you talk about han every every podcast and story and film that i have to listen to about every documentary that talks about you know uh saigu or whatever yeah always has to talk about han there's always this one line <laughs> explainer about han in yeah. every single thing where it's fact like Dude, I get it. Like, I just, yes. I get it, okay? You know? You just, you <laughs> so feel it, you, you get it. You know it, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, when people make the comment, or they observe, like, oh, Koreans, like, drink a lot. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, they gotta. Like, there's a reason why. <laughs> so, 
again, as the non-Korean surrounded by Koreans at all times, uh, I want to say that after listening to the podcast, uh, I, I texted Phil. I was like, you know, somebody's just got to come out with this this primer, like a list of all of the like uniquely Korean feelings and emotions that no one else can possibly understand that are related to the deep history of the culture and its experiences with colonialization and heartbreak and war and everything. And obviously Han is at the center of it. Uh, and there are a lot of terms that I've also heard that relate to things like, you know, situational awareness, nunchi, and, you know. <laughs> but, but there's one actually you yes. mentioned. Uh, what is this this one of, like, sort of indescribable joy or something, uh, which I'd never heard of before? And uh, it is interesting to me because when you, people talk about Korean culture, there is a tendency to think about it from the standpoint of that kind of K-drama, almost sense of constant the universe is against me and there's nothing I can do about it and I might as well die. But K-pop actually draws from other very in, intrinsically Korean feelings that aren't that. So it's not just about Han. It's also about this other thing. What is that term again? And where did you first come across that idea? Yeah, it's called Hung. Um, I think it was maybe one of the producers on our show who who maybe brought it up the first time because I obviously did that classic thing of like, well, here's Han and this is why we're like so effed up. (laughs) Um, And then she was like, wait, but there's Hung too. And I had actually never heard about it either. But it's Right? Okay, but it's sort of like the yin and yang, but it's the combination of those two things that make Koreans Korean. It's not just Han. It's also like the joyful, resilient... um, expressive celebratory part because Koreans are culturally very expressive right like we show our emotions on our face like we feel feelings very deeply like that K rage is also like a form of expression (laughs) (laughs) and like somebody pointed this out to me recently too um was that there's this idea that Koreans just love to like sing and dance you know that thing where like certain Asian countries and families you just grow up where if there are kids who sing it's like okay sing in front of the entire family now entertain us and that's just like a part of the culture growing up and I'm like that is also very inherently Korean and I feel like k-pop is the perfect you know melding of both those things it's it's so true it's so true it's so funny that I too had never heard of this of hung right but uh, yeah because and this idea of like collective celebration and joy over something you know and I was like oh I've I didn't know that that's what it was called, but I felt it. I yeah. felt it. When, I felt it when Kim, Kim Yona won the gold medal. I felt it when <laughs> yes. you know during the Korean during the World Cup in you know two thousand two. I I felt it when Parasite won uh, you know the Oscar, yeah. and I was like, but but I see the thing is I called that Han too. I felt I felt like that was <laughs> yeah. Han, right? Like because that too. It's vindication. All the celebration <laughs> is the pain. underneath the is celebration the is the pain, <laughs> yeah. right? So I was like, yeah. oh. This is Han too. This is like a, a maybe you know Han light or something. I don't know. Like- That's so true. I think I considered it that way too. That they were inherently like the same thing, two sides mm-hmm. of the same coin. And it turns out it just has its own name. That's yeah. so so true. So well, funny. on this on this podcast, uh, our words for Han and Hang are you and Yang. <laughs> like <laughs> Phil is a receptacle of all the K rage and <laughs> remembrance of of uh, the slights that that we have uh, received, and I'm the guy who's always like, oh, but you know what? Let's celebrate, guys. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, that said, it, talking about Han is a good segue, perhaps, to uh, the darker side, and there is a darker side, presumably, of, of growing up with K-pop. And maybe part of it is what you already talked about, this feeling that for a long time K-pop was something you didn't want people to know that you listened to, you know? I That that shame of, like, having sort of little secret thing. I mean, hell, all of us growing up as Asian Americans have a little bit of that. We're proud at home and then we're kind of ashamed in public. I don't know if that's what you would consider to be the bad of growing up with K-pop, but... If not that, then what is? (laughs) Yeah, when I look back, like, it makes me kind of sad that that's how I felt, you know? Um, Because part of it was circumstantial, but a lot of it was internalized. And a lot of it was wanting to not just, like, appear white, but, like, straight up be white to the point where I would... I would like wake up or I would be doing something and I'd go to the bathroom and then I'd catch myself in the mirror and then I'd be like shocked that I looked 
Korean or Asian mm. because in my mind I was white. I looked like the people on TV. Um, and so that disconnect, I think, makes me really sad for my younger self. Um, not being able to fully accept who I was because I felt like society didn't accept people like me or mainstream society anyway. So that's probably that's probably bad. <laughs> I, I hope other people, you know, in the future don't have to go through those things. And it's really interesting thinking about like minority versus majority and representation and whether all of that should be proportional like exactly to match the exact percentages of the demographics in the country or whatever you know um and it's a really really hard conversation but all i know is that i'm very very happy to have gone through this process where now i can proudly say that i am the sum of all of my experiences the good and the bad you know is it weird now that there are like lots of non-Koreans and non-Asians who are like in reverse, kind of thinking of themselves as Korean or wanting to be Korean. Or... Oh yeah, that surgery guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> that guy who just wants to look like Jimin, and he's like, I identify as Korean. <sighs> I have no public opinions on that. <laughs> oh, we have public I have, opinions I have on nothing. that. <laughs> We have, just like, oh, we have enough wow. for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 tough. It's a it's a weird world we live in. Uh, all right, well, <laughs> here we are. That's a great segue, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. That is a really really yeah. good segue. We are we are at the WTF moment. Uh, so take us home. Tell us what to you is the WTF of growing up with K-pop, Vivian. Okay, so I think the thing that really stands out to me is how a lot of my friends and I, we learned how to type in Korean to try and like download songs or look at lyrics and stuff online. <laughs> and it just makes me think of how like our generation that grew up with like AIM and, you know, um, MSN Messenger and like Kazaa and Napster and LimeWire, we're like really good at typing because... We had conversations by typing, but like people older than us or slightly younger than us, they're not as good at typing, right? Like they didn't grow up with like Mavis Beacon or whatever and that being tested <laughs> in schools. And it's just a different world where now kids are really good at like texting and their fingers fly with their phones. But typing is very, very unique to like that generation. And it kind of makes me sad that, or maybe proud that we're just like so good at it. <laughs> I don't know why that's like the thing that it makes me think of, but I feel like it's very, very time capsule of my generation. It's like, we're really good at typing with like both fingers on the like correct letters on the keyboard, which nobody cares about anymore. Same. I never thought about that. I mean, we, <laughs> no. Honestly, uh, one of the things which actually comes out of that is the differences in mistakes people make when typing. Like when I see my kids texting me, the mistakes they're making are totally different from the mistakes I make because I'm used to kind of like the the touch typing with all hands, right? Uh, yeah. A lot of times the mistakes they make are thumb typing mistakes where it's it's literally because, you know, you're expecting autocorrect to go a certain way and it doesn't, and they're so used to it. Uh -huh. So it's like adjacent words, not like just typos. It's like there's a, it's like, you know, duck you. <laughs> not that my kids say that to me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and now we're yeah. growing up in an era where people are increasingly using text, uh, speech to text, right? So we're going to start getting a different layer of errors, which is about people, you know, using phonetically similar, you know, sort of homonyms, right? Uh, in the place of, of words. It's almost like the fossil record of the interfaces we use comes out in the... The, the, the typos. The typos yeah. we leave behind. <laughs> Um, but it's like when they can um, they study like handwriting to tell like if you're a serial killer or whatever right? <laughs> look at the typos, look at the, typos. Yeah. the clue it's all there it's all yeah, there. right no one has handwriting anymore so whatever uh, but yeah uh, that analysis is gonna happen soon well one of the things that actually pointed me to that uh, that aim era thing was when you were talking about the fact that all of your boyfriend your kind of thug boyfriends uh, friends had KPX in their handles because KPX <laughs> yeah. stood for Korean power and then the X symbol here, right? Korean pride. Korean pride. Not power. Not power. Korean power is the gang. Yeah. 
But yeah, cream fried, <laughs> cream fried yeah. here. And and it was a marker of like, oh, you know, I'm from Koreatown and I rep it, right? And yeah. again, no one who doesn't know that is going to reverse engineer that from looking at people's aim handles if those are even recorded anywhere uh, from the vantage point of today. So it's that kind of like recent history, you know, digging up of the strata that is so fascinating about this podcast. Yeah, I wish we could have gone more into like K-Town culture in like the 90s and 2000s because I feel like it was so specific with like the Tangujangs, right? The billiard places and Cyberzone and like the photo booth <laughs> places. Like it was this whole own thing with all these like unsupervised kids just acting really tough and hard. And <laughs> I think as as we have said lo- a, a lot of times when, when we discuss our book is that like our book really just scratches the surface and we wish we could spend more time on any number of topics that we talk about. Just like in this podcast, I mean, like, you know, you don't need to wish that you would have talked about this other thing because you could have an all other podcast about Koreatown, about these, mm-hmm. about these things, right? Like, um, we could have a whole other podcast about like AZN Pride yeah. era <laughs> shit, you know, like that's just, it's like fascinating, right? So yes. um, all this stuff is worthy of exploration. I'm really glad that your podcast is an example of this, you know, being, being able to interrogate and look at um, and, and, and really examine through a personal lens um, mm. This aspect of something that's very, that's kind of it seems ubiquitous now, but like has roots, you know, has personal origins. So that's really cool. All right, we've done our three rounds. We have. Um, thank you for playing. I want to add one WTF, by the way, <laughs> that from from my perspective, just because it, it when it came, I came across it, it really it threw me hard, right? Which was just when you were talking about your mom and your mom's history as like a club girl in Itaewon in her 20s and everything, you actually dropped this little factoid that I was like, that can't be right. And it is that she talks about how the song Brother Louie by Modern Talking was what everybody was listening to in all the clubs back then. And, you know, you're talking about your mom, and you're just like, oh, you know, my mom is like, you know, she's an you know, older woman, she's in her 60s or whatever. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Like, that was the music which... I was listening to at parties when I was in my 20s. And then it hit me. I'm like closer to your mom's age than I am to your age. And that is why. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, holy shit. Like, my God. All that synth pop (laughs) stuff that I was like, oh, yeah, you know, New Order and, you know, whatever. It's like, that is the stuff that your mom probably grew up with, not you. So, oh, my God. Uh, Anyway, so I had a sad. I had a big sad right there. Well, that is our three rounds. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing that. Um, <laughs> the podcast is K-Pop Dreaming, hosted by Vivian Yoon, our guest. It's from LAS Studios. It's actually the second season of the podcast California Love. So if you're looking for it on your podcast app, search for California Love and K-Pop Dreaming should come up. Vivian, how can people connect with you, find you online? Yeah, I'm really just only on Instagram. You can find me at Vivian J. Yoon. And that's pretty much it. I'm like really scared of Twitter, so I stay off it. <laughs> that's wise. You should. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a garbage cesspool. Anyway, <laughs> that's it. Jeff, Jeff Yang, how can people find you online? Uh, I guess I'm still floating in the garbage pool. But uh, yeah, original spin on Twitter. Uh, on Mastodon, I am also Original Spin at mas.to, and I'm on Instagram actually as Original Spin these days. So look for me there as well. How about you, Phil? How can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at Angry Asian Man on social media and on AngryAsianMan.com. You can find They Call Us Bruce at They Call Us Bruce on you know Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Vivian Yoon. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for the podcast. It's been really a pleasure having you on. And, you know, we, we just thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so, so, so thrilled that I got to chat with you guys. And thank you for listening to the podcast. It's like genuinely shocking anytime like anyone listens. So thanks. It's good. <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. Uh, All right, everybody. Until next time. Peace. Peace. 
You've been listening to They Call Us Bruce with Jeff Yang and Phil Yu. Our theme music is by Kiro One. They Call Us Bruce is a member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian American community. Find out more at podcastpotluck.com. And thanks for listening. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.